0: With unlimited manufacturing capacity, MacFab gives you more electronics manufacturing options so you can get to market faster. Now with one platform, you have access to several electronic manufacturing factories in North America for all your manufacturing needs. Skip long lead times by using factories with immediate manufacturing capacity for PCB assembly and system integration. Go from prototype to high volume production with one manufacturer, Macrofab, and take advantage of lower costs through our automated platform-driven process and relationships with key part distributors and other manufacturers. Access readily available capacity at any quantity to rapidly scale your business and Macrofab's one-year warranty on workmanship guarantees that your PCB assembly will be held to the highest standards. Learn more at Macrofab.com.
1: Hey, welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Mike Geier.
0: And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 187. The MacFab Engineering Podcast design contest sponsored by Mauser Electronics ends Friday, August 31st. That's this Friday, people. Enter your useless machines now. We have cash prizes up to $1,000 for the winners. More
2: information can be found on macfab.com slash blog. There's a lot of cool projects out there, so uh, get yours in, and hopefully you can win $1,000. So, Mike Geyers leads marketing and business development for Fictive. His true passion lies in transforming the manufacturing industry, and having worked at Caterpillar, Autodesk, and Kaiser Aluminum, he has seen firsthand the waste inefficiencies that permeate the market. From large Fortune 500 manufacturers to emerging technology startups, Mike has worked to solve a wide array of business challenges across the industry. His experience with hardware entrepreneurs, manufacturing venture capital firms, large format additive manufacturing, clues loop servo networks, and fabrication of generative automotive chassis provides him a unique perspective on the rapidly changing landscape of manufacturing. At fictive, he is currently focused on the disintermediation of traditional manufacturing supply chains and bringing distributed manufacturing to life for manufacturers of all sizes around the world.
1: That was pretty good. You passed the test, Stephen. Nicely done.
2: (laughs) Thank you so
0: much, Mike, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us goons.
1: Oh, hey, it's great to be here. It's it's, uh, really an honor. I'm a big fan of what you guys do. So thanks for having me.
0: And before we get started with the topics, um, Mike, what is Fictive?
1: Yeah, so Fictive is a distributed manufacturing platform. Uh, We specialize in custom mechanical uh, products. So 3D printing, CNC, injection molding, urethane casting, sheet metal, um, pretty much if it's a mechanical component for any kind of product around the world and you need it uh, fast, high quality, high precision, high complexity, uh, we're the place to do it
0: and so the topic for this podcast is going to be the state of hardware uh fictive came out with a 2018 report about uh hardware product design and i guess we're going to kind of go over like the bullet points of it right
1: yeah that sounds great so um we we came out with a 2018 we came out with a 2019 and we're gonna
0: oh this is the 2019 god god willing
1: we're gonna do one in 2020 as well so um i guess to give a little bit more background on kind of Fictive and and how we started, Um, the company was founded by a guy named Dave Evans and his brother Nate Evans, Uh, both Stanford grads, one in international business and um, international trade and the other mechanical engineering. Um, Dave was the mechanical engineer and uh, one of the first jobs he held was with Ford in the Palo Alto Research Lab, so he was kind of setting that research lab up as Ford is trying to get closer to innovating at the speed of Silicon Valley, if you will. And um, Dave was charged with figuring out how to make it so that when a new Ford came out, the touchscreen didn't suck because it was seven years old, because it takes seven years to develop a car and new touchscreens and phones and whatever else are coming out every seven to eight months. And so that was that was kind of the genesis of the problem statement that, that Dave was looking at when he was at Ford. And um, what that led to was him- Did he manage to solve that? um he didn't manage to solve that <laughs> i would say anybody that's driven uh i think ford has gotten better at that but anybody that's driven uh some of the fords you could tell that they're still working on user interface and, and those kind of things
0: <laughs> uh, side notice i've never driven in a car that i was like i enjoy this user interface <laughs> that's true I, I i sat in a tesla once and their interface is pretty cool that, that is a
1: pretty cool interface i have to admit i i did I had like a Ford Mustang rental once and I was just so pissed off by the the interface. I actually went through and counted all the buttons and different options. There's like 37 different buttons, right? There's like four different ways you can manipulate the seat and all this stuff. So I think there's still, there's still some work for him to do on the interface. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but what what Dave found was he was trying to source prototype parts for like dashboards and consoles and stuff. And he was... Um, He did some experiments where he was like, hey, you know, I know that if I request a quote with my Ford.com email address, they're going to send me the highest possible price and the longest possible lead time because I'm building cars and we know that cars have a long lead time. So these suppliers that he was getting in touch with were like, whatever, we'll jack the price through the roof and he doesn't care about lead time and quality can be whatever. And so Dave started doing some tests where he used his personal um, email, he's probably running Hotmail or Yahoo or something at the time, and um, and then a, a Stanford email. And what he found was with the exact same suppliers, he was getting completely different lead times, completely different prices, and said, look, there's a gap here. And so um, what Dave did is he convinced his brother to go in with him 50-50 on buying a MakerBot Replicator 2. Everybody's probably seen the first like nice-looking MakerBot, the black one that was... Actually reliable it might be the last one that's actually reliable too. Don't quote me on that um, <laughs> <laughs> and so they uh, they bought one you know they put it in their laundry room. Uh, they had some friends that graduated with them who were making uh, a phone case for some of the first iPhones where you could actually slide a credit card in, right which now seems totally obvious, but at the time was a novel idea and they um, they said, all right, well, you know we're going to print these cases for these guys and make it for them and if we, can, if we can pay off the printer in the first, what did they say, a month or two months, then we think we got a business and so we're gonna quit our day jobs and do this stuff full time. So they paid off the printer, uh, they quit their day jobs, they bought a cheap Chinese red scooter, and they're both big dudes, they're both like 6'5", beards, like look like lumberjacks, and the, the early story is that they would go and deliver these 3D printed parts around San Francisco, the both of them on, on the red scooter, and so that's, um, Unfortunately, two of these
0: really, two of these burly dudes on a scooter, right, delivering goofy, <laughs> goofy three D printed
1: prototypes in San Francisco. So um, now that I've, now that I've taken over marketing, I keep thinking we need to have some kind of internal t shirts or something of bur- two big burly dudes on on a red scooter, but. Like, I guess we'll see if we get that pulled it's off. It's like
0: a, like those moving companies where it's like three dudes in a truck, two burly dudes in a scooter. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> we uh, you you need prints? We got prints. Like one eight hundred got junk. One eight hundred we got prototypes or something, right? <laughs>
0: so um, we give out the best ideas for free here, no doubt,
1: right? We're, we <laughs> should uh, we should write these down. So fast forward a little bit, and um, they quickly evolve from just doing three D printing. Into CNC uh, because being in the Bay Area, you've got access to all the most um, well-funded and cutting-edge um, startups and hardware around the world, right? The the Bay Area hardware startup meetup is about 200 people every month that get together because they're working on different hardware products, um, and it's not just consumer electronics now. It's flying cars and privatized spacecraft and companies like Tesla. Um, who was actually one of the first companies we really started doing serious work with on the CNC front. Um, And then about a year later, we added injection molding and a number of other processes. Um, Kind of the way the business model works is we don't own any of the factories or the machines that actually produce the parts. Um, We work with a network of partners, typically smaller manufacturers, and they love us because we're able to serve as kind of like a sales and marketing function for them where we can bring business in the door, They get to focus on making parts and cutting metal and melting plastic, which is what they love. And um, their founders don't have to go out and drum up business, we're just able to shoot business to them. So it's got a really cool kind of um, small business invigorating local manufacturing vibe. At the same time, we're kind of consolidating, we think about the business model, We're, we're consolidating fragmented demand from some of the most sophisticated product development companies in the world down to um, two and three person startups that are also working on sophisticated stuff. And so it's kind of, it's a cool spot to be in because our supply side doesn't feel like they're getting screwed over and our customers feel like they're getting a great deal. Actually our supply side loves us. Um, we get a lot of requests every week for people trying to come on. Um, and so what I'm trying to partly that into is why we do this uh, this report, right? And mm-hmm. um, kind of being uh, the, the mix of manufacturers, um, on the streets, you know, with chips in their shoes and coolant in their hair. and Maybe they're missing a finger if they're not a very good CNC machinist or whatever. Um,
0: I think Steven's got all his fingers still.
2: I I don't know. I can't count that high. I'm not entirely (laughs) sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally fair. Um, but so it kind of puts us at an interesting position where we get to see a lot of stuff that's coming and, um, we really like to try to share that back with our user community as best we can, and so that's why um, Dave and Nate and their sister Christine, who's actually uh, a founding member of the business, um, started putting out the the hardware report. And I think this is our fifth year of doing it, so they've been doing it almost since they started the company, um, and it's really about kind of let's understand what's going on, let's ask people what do they hear and what are they seeing, and try to share that back and kind of stimulate the conversation. And so. We put out the report thinking,
0: Oh where does the sources of this report come from?
1: Yep, yeah, so it's about 1,300. This year it was about 1,300 individuals who um, we asked to participate. we put out some prizes. Um, largely it's folks that follow the fictive newsletter. So we put out a monthly newsletter. If you don't subscribe, um, you're totally missing out because it's some great stuff.
0: Click that subscribe button, people.
1: Hit the, hit the subscribe <laughs> button wherever it. Hit that, that is. bell. <laughs> yeah. um so that that's kind of how we find folks right and we we <laughs> what was the joke i of parker
0: oh that's what youtube people say all all the time yes. and we're a podcast a <laughs> yeah um youtube what's
1: that i'm just kidding <laughs> um yeah so so that's why we do the report and then we we publish it uh we kind of stoke the conversation online and then we go out and do our road show And so I was lucky enough to go tour around to a bunch of cities and sit down with really smart folks and kind of have a panel conversation. And we had beer and pizza. We did some teardowns, actually, where we tear our product apart and had contests and stuff. And it's really about just getting together with folks that love to make stuff.
0: So this is where you get to sit down and talk to people who are not that smart.
1: Um, You guys? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't think that's the case at all, right? I see some. I see electronic test bench. Is that an N64 in the background there, Parker?
0: Yes. You go, you're doing
2: a, you're doing there, there is. I know there or? is one back there. Somewhere. It's
0: right, right there. Yeah. You, uh, uh, yeah. It's getting an HDMI mod that one of my friends built. And Sorry.
1: then you're gonna rock some goldeneye, aren't
0: you? Uh, Star Fox. Oh.
1: Good times. Good times. So, anyways, we put out the report, uh, have a bunch of conversations about it, and then go around and do stuff like this and kind of look at it as a, a way to start a conversation and, and kind of engage folks on what's going on in the world of bringing hardware products to life. So, I imagine that's something you guys can relate to.
2: For sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know, uh, I think uh, before we go a little bit further, um, let's go ahead and tell the listeners where they can go and check out this. Um, State of the Hardware report in case they want to follow along. Yep. Is it, uh, is it available from your website?
1: Yep, you can find it on the website or I think the URL might be too difficult to relay here, but let me see if it's something I can
0: read out for yeah, folks. I, I deleted the URL off the notes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's my well, fault. <laughs> well, the, the website is, is fictive.com. That's F-I-C-T-I-V dot com.
0: Yep. Oh, I got it. Yeah, com slash 2019 hyphen state hyphen of hyphen re- hardware hyphen report really straightforward very straightforward <laughs> <laughs> like to make your pens and people people take notes
1: Yep. or just uh search 2019 state of hardware Either way um that's where you can get it uh we did a webinar on it i don't think we recorded any of the tour uh the tour is over but um if you're interested in participating next year that'd be good too
0: so it wasn't a farewell tour <laughs> no it was not a farewell tour
1: <laughs> although its I gotta tell you, we did our last event in Pittsburgh, and um Bosch uh donated a bunch of these woodworking routers, and so we broke into teams and everybody after they'd been drinking beer all night um Can they used power tools <laughs> they, tore, they tore apart no, they didn't use them, they tore them apart, but it was oh, okay so it was definitely um it, <laughs> it was definitely a farewell tour for those. Those routers, that's for sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice.
2: <laughs> okay, so um, this uh, hardware report, and well, the state of hardware report. What, what, what kind of information are we going to see in that? Yeah.
1: So, um, the the big thing we look at are kind of what are the trends that are impacting um, teams' ability to bring new hardware products to market, right? And so, uh, one of the things we started seeing last year was signals about the global trade and the tariffs and and all this kind of stuff that uh, is pretty hard to avoid um, seeing some news about almost daily, if not hourly. Um, some some of the trends that came out this year, we're really talking about kind of um, moving from doing prototyping into production, right? So, so many early stage hardware companies, this is where they really, really struggle is... Um, Now that the barriers have come down to kind of making your first one or two prototypes, a lot more people are doing it, but where they really struggle is going into that point where you've got full product market fit and you're making 10, 20,000 of these things a month. Um, And then the other thing we wanted to look at was really just kind of more the personality side of, of who is it that's making hardware and kind of what is the... You know, what is the makeup of these folks and what do they think about what gets them motivated? Um, you know, how much coffee they drink and that kind of stuff. So those were, those were kind of the big three um, things in, in terms of category. Um, and what I guess to just kind of jump in, like one of the things we saw was, um, I don't know, surprising, but not surprising. I guess not surprising in that it showed up but surprising like, to the extent that people said that this was impacting them, was this stat around 62% of the folks we surveyed um, said that tariffs have increased their material and component costs. And that spans both mechanical and electrical stuff. Um, we have one, one company, there's a story I tell, uh, they're a startup in Boston and they're working on a consumer electronics product. And, the product's got about a $1,000 price point. They kind of have to keep it under a $1,000 to be able to sell this thing in the market. And um, they started in 2018, they started telling the story of um, the tariff on their cost of goods sold because they're having it made in China at a big contract manufacturer. It was like half a percentage point, right? Kind of not a big deal. And then some of the new tariff stuff got rolled out in June and it goes up to 10%. And you think about 10% on a cost of goods sold for you can guess what the product cost needs to be to hit the margins, and then in the fall they are looking at twenty five percent, right? And so, um, the early stage company they can't necessarily just say, "Hey, we're passing that on to our customers." They don't have they don't have a customer base of an Apple or a Samsung, right? And
0: they don't and, have the the marketing clout to do that. Yeah,
1: right. Um, <clears throat> and so it's kind of you know it creates a really challenging situation for some of these early companies that are really trying to disrupt the market and do something different. Um, and so that, that's kind of something that came out in the report, um, you know, 19% said they experienced product launch delays, um, almost 20% were already trying to rethink their supply chain, right? They're trying to think of places other than China to get their stuff made, which um, for anybody that's set up supply for a mechanical component, it's hard man. it takes a long time. You got to hire a bunch of people. You gotta um, go and vet the factories and get the quality right, and get the contracts and the finances and the tax and all this stuff, and um, to move it out of the country is it's a lot of overhead, right?
0: Yeah, Um, I would say the biggest problem with that is like, how do you maintain your quality as you're moving to a different factory or a different country, or if you're onshoring your product back your products? Like, how do you maintain that quality? It's a big challenge. I think you hit
1: it on the head, right? I mean, even. Even if you're not moving factories, it's hard to maintain your quality, right? Um, factories working on multiple products at the same time. Um, they can, material sources can change, especially if you're doing overseas, staff can change, the plant manager can change. You get all, a lot of variables that go into making these physical products. And um, yeah, it's a it's a tough, tough thing, Parker. I think you hit it on the head.
2: Well, on top of that, something um, we've actually mentioned a couple times recently on the podcast is, the uh, The idea that you know you you may have already established relationships with a uh, a manufacturer or a vendor you you know them by name, you know the people you're in contact with, so when it comes to quality issues or maintaining quality, you have that relationship established. If you're f- flopping around from vendor to vendor, that relationship just becomes a document that says you must do a good job right <laughs> so and, th- true, and that's right? kind of hard
1: yeah. yeah. And those, I mean, those documents are only as good as the trust that they're built upon, right? As the relationship and the communication behind them.
2: Right, right. Because if, you,
1: you know, what are you going to do? Go sue a big factory in China if your stuff's not coming out right? Let's forget about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a place where, um, I don't know, we, we're optimistic from the fictive side and that we think we can help offset some of that because we're kind of managing the communication and the, the systems and we've onboarded. A network of suppliers in multiple countries and so in theory we're able to redistribute that and offset some of that risk and and make it a little bit easier to switch because you're all you know if you're steven you're the guy or the gals building the product you're talking to me at fictive and i'm your manufacturer of record and it's on me to manage the relationships with my um, my quality engineers that are on site and with my suppliers that are in China, Taiwan, Taipei, Japan, wherever it may be. Um, And so that's, I think one thing where it was interesting for us to hear this, it's encouraging, but also puts a lot of pressure on us, right? To be kind of part of the solution and not just pointing out the problem that I think everybody can see.
0: Yeah, so what are are some ways engineers can reduce these impacts of these tariffs? Just look for loopholes, man. Look for all the loopholes you can get. (laughs) No, Go I mean, trying to fill up your briefcase full of, you know, resistors and capacitors and then oh, hop back man. on the plane. Well, that's a challenge, right? <laughs> you guys
1: probably see a lot of stuff with counterfeit components in the electronic space, right?
0: Oh, it is probably up in the top five of, of problems. Yeah. Yeah. If not one or two, <laughs> especially supply chain. Yeah,
1: it's huge. Right. So, uh, you know, on the mechanical side, um, counterfeit materials are more of a problem than counterfeit products because you can pretty easily identify a counterfeit product um but some of the the stuff engineers are doing is um, wasn't
0: there a thing recently with nasa getting uncertified or getting materials that were certified and they weren't a real thing
1: i don't know if i heard about that it's entirely possible yeah
0: and there was a uh there's a japanese uh steel industry also was caught with that as well. That was like last year, I think though. Oh really? You have to simulate. me the but it was those. it But it was materials, as you were saying. It wasn't like fake fasteners. It was like the materials themselves had spoofed uh, documentation saying it was something that wasn't that. It's
1: really common. We, we actually had to buy some uh, special equipment in our uh, our operation in China to scan the metals because you, do, you can't really tell by looking at it, right? And just because I actually worked at an aluminum smelter and the way you tag it is you just put a sticker on this nearly molten hot piece of metal and it's a barcode, right? And then it gets cut and it gets flattened. And you think about it, there's really not a good way to physically track what this stuff is. And the cost in some of these materials can be drastically different. So um, it makes sense that you know people are counterfeiting stuff. Um, more above board ways to deal with it are, um, first you kind of, try to value engineer or engineer um, around the tariffs. And there's even terms, you know, people are using like tariff engineering um, to try to do things like keep the cost down. Oh, there's a term for that
2: now. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> but, um, you know, just simple things like, hey, where you have it assembled can impact the cost of the tariff, right? Um, where you source different components can,
0: can- Yeah, don't pick that Chinese LED, pick that Taiwanese LED. Exactly, right. Well,
2: and, and, and hey, I actually just kicked the link over to you guys. We can put it up in the show notes. But uh, apparently that that NASA um, material that was faulty uh, came from an Oregon-based aluminum extrusion manufacturer. Nice. And and apparently it looks like they've been doing it for 20 years. Wow. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough. (laughs) So I will say that was not the aluminum
1: smelter that that I worked at. The one I worked at was in Spokane, Washington, and it's long since been shut down. Um, so they probably had even more egregious errors than that one. But um, <laughs> just because I'm based in Oregon doesn't mean I'm I'm uh, intrinsically linked to the steel trade here. <laughs> At least not that I'll admit to on this podcast. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, other stuff is like you just you you pick what you have to move the country that the stuff's being sourced in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we get companies coming to us because they see that kind of having this distributed. Um, model is, is a good way to go about it. Um, also, um, just where things are assembled uh, can make a big difference, right? If you just bring in the parts and you have them assembled in the US, it's a different, um, it's called an HTC code, which you guys probably know, but that's how the tariffs are classified for different
0: characters. Harmonized tariff code. <laughs> there you go, man. Yeah.
1: Now we're getting deep. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about harmonized tariff codes now. Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> those are the most soulless things you'll ever read in your life
2: oh, i don't think I, just I don't pages think I and that. pages of numbers and what it re- references right
0: yeah and it's like does my thing mean this because like it's really weird because some products can fall under multiple different tariff codes and really you can put that on there and it's up to the customs
2: agent to be like Nah. I'll be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, that's where, the, that's where the tariff engineering comes in, right? You you need to know the right code to get the cheapest price. <laughs> Make it look like a microwave, but it's actually a blender.
1: Yep. Hey. Or if it's like the coolest cooler, maybe it's all three combined. You guys, the coolest cooler... Uh, sorry, maybe that's... Was
0: that the cooler with the speakers on it that was on Kickstarter?
1: That was also had a blender. Oh, it, it has like,
0: a, bl- okay. It was like a Bluetooth speaker. <laughs> I knew it had a Bluetooth speaker, but I didn't know it had a blender in it. <laughs> I, I have to look this up. It's called the coolest
2: cooler.
1: Oh yeah, I got to send you guys the- That's solid. We just we just did a post on, I think, one of our social channels with, uh, with the picture we did. We do a teardown.
2: You know, the only thing that this is missing, have you guys seen the coolers that like have a straight up engine on it and you can ride them around? Like yes. that's that's the only thing this so- is missing. <laughs>
0: So, Steven, you missed uh, when we were at Vegas for DEFCON. Uh-huh. There were people driving around with those in the casino. In the casino? In the casino, and then just going straight on the Strip and driving down the Strip. Oh, that's full DEFCON. It was. It's like, how? <laughs> why are people not
2: stop? I guess that's OK. It's Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> wow, OK, so, so they're, 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 their price ranges go all over the place. I'm seeing $430 to $1,400 for our coolest cooler.
1: Yeah, I think they're pretty rare now. But, anyways, we do teardowns, We do we like every month we'll take a product and we tear it apart. And sometimes they're commercially available, and sometimes our companies have gone out of business. And um, we we use it as a way to kind of deconstruct and reverse engineer this stuff. Um, but you can even see in the, some of those articles that we put out some of the decisions people are making around trade offs and how they're you know they're cutting corners or they're going overboard on over engineering some of these things. We did one on juicero right and just like that is another great and sad story but you just look at how over-engineered some of these things are and it's it's that's kind of baffling that, um, that's that's he,
2: that's one of those stories where that you give your engineering team a nearly endless budget and just say like have fun you know yeah that's <laughs> good <gotta, laughs> i want one of those yeah. <laughs> yeah so so wait are you posting these teardowns on youtube because that sounds awesome i would watch yeah they're, the hell they're super
1: awesome yeah just search i don't know uh Fictive teardown or, or teardown. We did one of a Dyson fan. I think if you just search like Dyson fan, we're like one of the third or fourth uh, page rank results. Um, the other thing that kind of kind of is happening though is um, there's like for a long time when in my previous job at, at Autodesk we talked about like nearshoring and onshoring and these as kind of like emerging trends, but some of that stuff's actually becoming a reality now as as companies are, are really making moves to bring production closer to the point of of demand.
0: I, I do like the term near shore Cause it just means Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it could mean Canada. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, sure.
2: <laughs> as long as it shares a shoreline, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: I always I always imagine though, like you got like one of those like oil rigs and it's two hundred miles offshore. And there's I a manufacturing have, I have a good facility. With... And we've
1: we've talked about this a lot, right? Of well, if you just set up your manufacturing facility on an old uh, container ship, you're in international waters. You're not subject to any import or export regulations.
0: And then bring your ship in when you have to offload. Oh, that's brilliant.
1: There was Google set up. They had like a macro boat. They had a container ship offshore in the, in the Bay Area, and there was speculation that that was part of, of what they were doing. At least amongst those of us that are into containerized factories and three D printing, fully customized.
2: Maybe it's just a bank boat, and they put all of their money on it, and uh, it's international <laughs> waters, no no taxes, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: There's also um, that I mean, has to be a thing. <laughs> oh yeah, this like podcast lawless, is just solid ideas the entire The time.
1: lawless flotilla, right? You get a container ship, you take it out into international waters. You do. Um, I had some buddies uh, at MegaBots, and they were going to stage one of their giant fighting robot battles out on a container ship because they were like, look, if somebody gets hurt, if somebody breaks a leg,
0: just toss them overboard. Totally.
1: It's like, <laughs> we had Dennis Hopper and Kevin Costner up in here. Just, just, uh, the lawless flotilla is what we, what we called it. Um, anyways. All right. So coming back to the report before I go completely off script about Waterworld and everything else. Um, so yeah, the idea of like tariff engineering is real. Um, the exciting thing is like near shoring and, I believe that's gonna start to push some of these more advanced technologies for um, producing things, right? Um, 3D printing circuits, uh, large format printing, high resolution. I think it's actually gonna be um, pretty advantageous for a lot of the folks that are in these newer manufacturing technologies that haven't quite reached traction in full production. I think the cost of doing stuff and the risk of doing stuff overseas is gonna start to come to a point where we say, well, let's just find a different way and do it closer to home. And that's kind of one of the ideas that's always been really um, something, a, a passion for me is going back to hanging out with guys like Jay Rogers at Local Motors and Mark Hatch at Tech Shop. And a lot of folks that have always said, you know, you should be able to buy a car that's produced within 50 miles of where you live. And most of the crap you buy should be customized to you and rather than somebody in marketing guessing that like, hey, this is the headset that Parker's gonna want. Like, Let's go at, and then stock it on a store shelf and hope to hell that he buys that one and not the other shit, man. What headset do you want? Design it yourself. We'll make it for you and it'll be all on demand. So that's, I mean, it's kind of the vision of where some of the stuff can go. But right now we're in a, we're in a pretty tricky, uh, time with just people trying to get through this, this grind of like, how do I deal with shit? That's 25% more, more costly? expensive.
0: Yeah. Like almost overnight for some things. Yeah.
1: And drastically, right? And to the point where if you're a small business, like you said, you can't you don't have the marketing resources to go.
0: Or there's the just the, you know, checkbook to do it. Yep. Yeah. So you a... can't you can't even be like like you can't even purchase your supplies because it's twenty five percent more expensive now. Well, if you're a large company, yeah, you could probably absorb that twenty five percent and then build the thing, put it on the shelves, and then then the customers can absorb that twenty five percent. But if you're a small company, you can't even absorb that first 25% impact.
2: Cash flow, right? right. And, and and if you're big enough, you can blame the powers uh, for that. Like if Apple said, hey, our phones are gonna be 25% more because people made them 25% more, I, I guarantee you people would sit back and just be like, well, that's reasonable because people said that. that you can't." As a small company, you can't pull that off. You
1: cannot, yeah. And if Apple did it, people would probably be like, oh, I want it even more now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, the tariff adder it's fifteen hundred dollars not a thousand
1: yeah that seems like a great idea <laughs> totally um so on that like you know the, the next big topic is kind of this uh, idea of like scaling into production um <clears throat> where we heard like two out of three of the people we asked uh we just weren't weren't impressed with um the manufacturers they were working with and their ability to go up in volume or down in volume
0: see wow. one out of those three are macfab customers that's probably true.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Because <laughs> we scale up with cu- our customers.
1: Tell me more. With our,
0: inf- was it infinite uh, infinite uh, factory capacity or something like that,
1: Love magic. It. That sounds, I mean, it sounds like a great idea, right? Is people like volumes change, right? You can't lock a company into a production schedule for a whole year
0: when you don't know well, that's what, what the demand is. Yeah, I mean, that's what most contract manufacturers do.
1: Yep. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> we also saw like, you know, 71% assembled uh, less than 5,000 end use products in their first six months after launch. I think that's validation that, like, you launch a product, you're not immediately at volume, but
0: you're, you're not volume. immediately selling a million a month.
1: <laughs> Funny how that is. <laughs> Who would have <the> right? thought? <laughs> <clears throat> yep. Um, you know, uh, 30% didn't stay on budget, which, we were. It's funny. We were. We were doing one of these in, uh, I think it was Seattle, and somebody in the audience was like, "That number is bullshit." I gotta call number. I gotta call bullshit on that number. It's way higher than thirty percent.
2: Oh, like-
0: didn't save on budget. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think it's because it feels bad, or like you're admitting defeat if you're not on budget. So people are less likely to report that <laughs> being true or not.
1: Totally. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're right on budget. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> For sure, um, you know, forty-three percent said they don't really feel like they have the resources to manage a supply chain, um, especially the smaller companies. That makes sense. When we start to work with um, medium and bigger sized companies, supply chain teams are like an entire department, right? There's vice presidents and senior vice presidents of supply chain organizations, and this is what they do all day, every day, right? So, um, and then this is another one that's probably debatable, but in terms of staying on schedule one and three said they didn't stay on schedule. Um, and th- 44- that's probably
0: three out of three. <clears throat>
2: <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs> What's what uh, th- there's the old, uh, um, simple equation for, for project management where it's like, come up with your idea on how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. And then multiply that by three and you might be okay
1: yeah (laughs) exactly right so
2: and you know i think it's the the question
1: we had at i think it was pittsburgh somebody was like well does that mean they're staying on the schedule that they originally put out or the updated schedule that was the version of the updated schedule with the updated schedule right yeah because
0: technically if your gantt chart just keeps slipping out you're 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 still on schedule exactly
2: Also, if, if, if being on schedule is what the initial salesman asked for, like zero out of all projects are on schedule, right? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: true. Right. So,
2: um, we let's see. I
0: want to know who this person is that has this quote. I work in aerospace. We are going to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) I'm assuming they mean whatever they're building is going to Mars, not them. It's hard well, to say. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard
1: to say. Um, we can, it doesn't say that out. they're
2: coming back. It just says we're going.
1: <laughs> <laughs> little sirens of Titan action there, right? A little um, Quality, you know, 71% were either unimpressed or dissatisfied with um, their production manufacturing company's uh, quality, um, and then just to kind of close this out really quickly, the last section is really kind of on people and careers um, and the, what we saw is just a lot. So, so
0: on that quality thing, yeah. it's interesting because it's really what we see as well, where like the for contract manufacturers, like what, what's the, what's that term? Um, and now I'm blanking on the marketing term for it. It's like how many people would recommend you oh, to like their net
1: promoter score, f-
0: net promoter score, NPS. That's what it's called. Anyway, like for contract manufacturers, it's like on average, like negative, like five. Which is, <laughs> as the industry as a whole, it's negative five. It's like, that is terrible. But it doesn't matter. i has there's... got like 95 or something like that.
1: Nice. There's only so many options, right? It's kind of, people are kind of limited.
2: The thing about it, okay, so quality, w- with quality, you have to have good expectations as the person who's interfacing with the contract manufacturer. And one of the first things that it seems obvious, but... Is missed a lot of times is that if you're the person who's looking to have something made, you need to have the expectation that you will not get 100% yield. Or if you do get 100% yield, that's because your contract manufacturer built extra and he ate the cost. Uh, like that's that's just pretty much always the, the 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 situation. And this whole quality 71% being somewhat satisfied or dissatisfied, a lot of that comes from the fact that people have this unfortunate uh i've i've experienced this unfortunate uh situation where you make one mistake and that's the entire order is considered bad you know uh, so yeah. one quality hit on one unit out of however many units you made is basically the entire order had a quality hit as opposed to considering it on a per unit basis you know yeah he he's talking about when when Steven was working here at the fab. Well, there's that, but no no, I've two, experienced it have, elsewhere too.
0: Okay, so we have two different metrics here at the fab for okay. for failures. We have that metric which is if something failed in an order, one thing, like that's a, that's that whole order failed. Then we have just like the overall, like that one unit was like 99 is like 99.99% yield still. So we have two metrics. One's a customer-facing NPS score kind of thing and the other one is it's like what the actual process is doing. And you use the one about the
1: process to kind of hold yourselves to improve, right? Is that? Correct, yeah. Okay. And so you kind of hold a higher standard for yourselves than necessarily what you'd like report out, is that?
0: No, so so the the other one is like making sure like, because I mean, if you order a 100 or something and one was bad, it's still kind of like, oh man, that kind of sucks. (laughs) But you, I understand that and most people understand that, that that's just how manufacturing works. You have yield rates. Yeah, that's 1%, which, I mean, that's not yeah. great, but that's also not
2: that bad.
0: No. Yeah, so the yeah. thing is though, is, it's still trying to hit that 100% for that person and make sure that they, they are not this somewhat satisfied or dissatisfied, they are 100% amaze-bossed <laughs> that this happened. <laughs>
1: You might you might have just invented a new category that's going to take over NPS. Your the the Amazeball score. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to put it on like some kind of weird uh, logarithmic scale where it's not just like a simple one to ten, right?
0: Well, it's not because like it's it, it's inverse. So like one is like like drastically drops it. <laughs>
2: <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nice, I love it, I love it. Um, all right, so oh, let's that's, see.
0: That's, that's rule is back in. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no, that's fine. It's good. I'm. <laughs> I was trying to think of, of how, how we can really evolve NPS because NPS has been around a while, right? Yeah. Um, cool. So then, like the last section is we kind of looked at people in their careers, right? So, really just trying to understand, like aside from the business and the metrics and the stuff, like you know, who's out there. Sixty-one um, percent. Uh, folks said that they work uh, on jobs outside their responsibilities quite often, um, which I think you know anybody that's worked at a small company or in uh, hardware development or manufacturing sees that this is the case pretty much at any company, right? It's becoming less and less delineated what someone's role
0: is. I, I think that's hundred percent like what startup life is about. Do, when we start, whatever at Macrofab, you need to do, whatever you need to do has to get done. I think at MacroFab, I've done everything besides accounting. Oh, really? Yeah. And even then, I've already, like, I manage kind of like the engineering books, like what our budget is. So I kind of do accounting, but I don't, like, have to report that to, like, they're like, here's some money, and then I make sure I don't run out. Nice. <laughs> what about you,
1: Steven? What what kind of stuff have you gotten mixed up in? Um,
2: yeah, I, he, I did a lot of- It might be easier to ask what I haven't gotten mixed okay, up. Okay. So, yeah.
1: so Parker kind of hasn't done accounting.
2: I've I've done a small amount of accounting. Uh, that I would say that, that yeah, that's probably one of the the least uh, <laughs> the, yeah. one of the fewest things I've been asked to do. Uh, but yeah, no, pretty much a good chunk of everything else. That's awesome. Even including uh, was it when, when it was like when we hired
0: Steven, I think we had like we had like six or eight employees, and like Church, who's our C or our, our chief product officer now, and me, we would clean toilets. Wow. So we didn't have a janitor. So you're the the adage of like, hey, I'll I'll
1: clean yeah. the toilets, I'll do whatever it takes. Yep. So <laughs> so on,
2: on this page that, that gives that sixty one percent figure, there's a um, kind of a I guess a little bit of a chart over on the right that says, How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? And twenty eight percent of people said none. That's a lie. That's 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 a <laughs> full on lie. I don't believe that figure. So either.
0: I wonder if you could rephrase that and just say caffeine. Because I bet you the majority of that twenty eight percent drink energy drinks yeah they're probably team. like
1: crushing monster all day right because
0: yeah, yeah. actually i don't drink coffee or do energy drinks but i take a caffeine pill every morning nice
2: <laughs> so. he, he just
0: main veins it right away yeah. <laughs> caffeine pill and a glass of water perfect wow. good to go for us today it's too hot here in houston for coffee
2: nah yeah i guess you now iced man.
0: coffee on the other hand is delicious but you have like yeah it's just so much easier just caffeine pill and water <laughs>
1: That's a good call out because 28% seems surprisingly high for no answer, right? For no Yeah. It would be I would actually be interesting to go through the data and we should do it. Now, a re- I like re-survey.
0: how it does drop down like for th- from between 2 cups and 3 cups there's actually a drop, but from 3 cups to 4 plus there's this ginormous increase. So like <laughs> there's some caffeine coffee junkies out there. Oh yeah.
1: Still, right? Yeah. I want, to, I want to see what the Monster Red Bull equivalent is, though, because I think it'd be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I think if you next year do, like, just caffeine and then have, like, a breakdown of, like, Monster, Red Bull, coffee, and then I would I would say put caffeine pill. See how many people click that one.
1: There you I go. <laughs> and then the other thing I want to see is, like, a time graph comparing um, stage in the product development process to number of cups
2: of coffee. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is really critical data right here. This is critical data. Well, I
1: mean, think about we could sell that data to the, the caffeine providers and Starbucks would be all over, yeah. right? Oh, we got a bunch of... Um, like I said, great ideas. This podcast, nothing but ideas. Bunch of critical deadline projects coming up. Um, let's see. So there's a couple last things I want to touch on. One is um, founders are kind of the happiest um, out, of, out of the bunch. So like 78%. Of the founders we talked to, rated their happiness as a four out of five. Um, It's kind of their job, right? They've got to be the eternal optimists, and it's their business and their creation. Um, But it also I think that's
0: a little bit Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) Sean, right there. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, of course I'm happy. Yes, of course I am. Why wouldn't I be doing this then? (laughs) (laughs) This is my dream. (laughs) Putting. No, I think I think you hit it. There is, it's your, your founder because you're it's your dream to be doing this. So. Even if you're doing, even if you're cleaning your employees' toilets and sweeping the floors and you know running the books and shipping stuff out five o'clock at eight p.m., that's what you want to do. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's what you, you know, and you built this thing, right? You brought these people together to to follow uh, with you on this mission, and you damn well better be happy about it, or you're probably gonna not last very long. Right. You know,
2: one one wow. of the things uh, my boss says, who is the owner of the company, and and I totally respect the hell out of this, um, is he 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 said multiple times like, this is my dream. It doesn't have to be yours, mm-hmm. uh, and and I I really respect that because like he's excited about it and he loves doing it and like it is his thing. And so if he's working late or if he's like pushing really hard on something or just like a big thing for him. It's because it is his dream, but he doesn't necessarily sit back and expect you to do the exact same thing. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. You you can't expect your employees to
0: be as fanatical as you are. I mean, you're trying to create a cult atmosphere, but you know, not everyone buys in. That's Not everyone drinks that, that fruit punch, man. (laughs)
1: it's a really healthy perspective though right i I love that stephen it's like hey this is my dream it may not be yours right Right. but um you know still expect you to come and work hard of course have realistic expectations that like you're maybe not going to grind yourself to a pulp um you know 80 hours a week every single week uh, doing this stuff that's i think that's a really healthy perspective for a founder to have absolutely um, I trust our founder is, is tuned out by this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Dave. <laughs> um, the, the, you know, the last thing, and it's kind of, um, I don't even really want to put a stat to it, but like the, the thing that we heard the most positive feedback was just around how rewarding it is to finally ship a product and to hold something in your hand that you worked on either as a, a supply chain manager, as an engineer, as a, an accountant, or whatever it is. Um, just how rewarding it is to finally see this thing that you've worked on come to fruition and be able to hold it in your hand and hand it to your parents or hand it to your you know your partner, or your kids, or whatever, and say, "Hey, this is a product that I built." Um, and that's that's kind of I think the thing that gets all of us at Fictive super fired up about what we do is when we have people. Um, we had a, a company called Electro Spit, and the founder, this guy named Bosco, who's a career musician. An idea for a new kind of um, talk box that you can use to modulate your voice when you're playing it through another instrument. Previously it was only really available with like a weird tube you blew into through electric guitar. Um, He's made an amazing product, right? All these really high-profile musicians are using it now and he's just talking about how um, you know this wouldn't have been possible uh, previously and how he was able to realize this thing and Now it seems like it's going to make a big impact in the music industry and we all know how much reach that can have. Um, So that's the stuff I think that makes it really fun and worthwhile despite all the big challenges.
0: I I do like this word graph here where it's like the larger it is, is the more people responded with that message. And the largest one is relief. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not being proud or joyful or satisfied. It's, oh my God, it's done. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> It'd be really so great cute. if there
2: was just right in the middle it was just like shit or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> exhaustion,
0: right? Exhaustion. Right. I would say I think relief and exhaustion would probably they are right there when you finally do to probably ship are. that product.
1: Yeah. You're
0: ready. you're relieved and now you can like at least sleep a little bit. <laughs>
1: yeah, no doubt. <laughs> No doubt. So
0: yeah, so that's the, the state of hardware report.
1: Um, encourage everybody to check it out. If you like making stuff, um, check out the blog at fictive.com Our teardowns on YouTube and, and also fictive.com slash blog. Um, thanks to all of our partners and everybody that helps um, with the survey, especially, um, Parker and, and Steven and Macrofab. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a super awesome conversation. So,
0: so before you sign us out, Mike, yeah. who could deploy Lean Six Sigma better in a company? Goodwilling hunting, Matt Damon, or the Martian Matt Damon?
1: Hmm. Okay, so deploying Lean Six Sigma in a company. We've got Matt Damon from the Martian or Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting. Ah That's a tough well, Matt choice. Damon from, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting is pretty damn smart.
0: Um, but the Matt Damon from The Martian is very lean, and he is physically—he's <laughs> one person on Mars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the ultimate definition of lean. And I would also say maybe a little bit more hands-on and pragmatic. Where I think Goodwill Hunting is theory and chalkboard and advanced. He's very physics, academic. Whereas, yeah, very academic. Whereas when I was—I didn't actually see the movie, but I read the book—just um, marveling at like really true kind of grit and problem solving right and and that um how that comes across and i think the author is it Weir um that that wrote the book um so i gotta go with with matt damon from the martian for deploying lean six sigma um but you gotta you know he's gonna have a black belt got to be a six sigma black belt (laughs) that's right that's right and maybe he's gonna have some kind of a japanese counterpart sidekick to do the kaizen kanban stuff (laughs)
2: Honestly, if it was that pair together, that would be the ultimate Six Sigma team, nice. <laughs> both of those together.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: So thank you so much, Mike, for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, This is a blast, you guys.
1: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Happy to come back anytime and um, hope to talk to you guys both soon. Cool. With that, would you like to uh, sign us out? Cool, yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Mike Geyer.
0: And we we're your hosts, Parker Dillman.
2: And Steven Craig. Thank you, everyone. Take it easy.
0: Thank you. Yes, you our listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.